0: Welcome to the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut.
1: And I'm Udanyu Pie.
0: And today we are talking about all the ways that the Enneagram brings together psychology and spirituality so that ultimately it represents really an amazing tool for us to do inner work in which we can be guided both in our psychological development and our spiritual development should we choose to.
1: Yeah, which makes the Enneagram very unique uh, and modern, because if you get the best lines of psychology and spirituality, they both acknowledge the importance of the other. Exactly. And they work so well together.
0: And yet some people may only focus on psychological work. Some people may only focus on spiritual work. Some people may focus more on practical tasks related to their development. Uh, and all I think are valid. However, I do think that the Enneagram provides a unique map that shows us how they all fit together and sheds a lot of light into what exactly we can do when we, when we do psychological work, what exactly we can do uh, when we do spiritual work. And here we're talking about spirituality. Um, I know that many people who've who've been interested in the Enneagram lately uh, came to the Enneagram through religious work or their religion or their religious beliefs or teachings. And certainly that's a big part of spirituality. So I think that's included in what we're talking about. But of course, spirituality can also be differentiated from religion. It's not exactly the same thing. Uh, And so we'll be focusing more on spirituality. But if you are someone that, that draws a lot on deeply held religious beliefs, certainly everything that we'll, we're saying here, we hope will will resonate with you and that you can find ways to incorporate some of the ideas that we'll be discussing into whatever path uh, is speaks to you most and whatever uh, tradition uh, you have been doing your work within.
1: Yeah, just to explain a bit more what we mean by spiritual work then. Uh, A religious person uh, with a very sincere quest and faith can, at times, uh, have a a, a deep inner experience in the heart of uh, feeling God or Jesus or whatever uh, figure we are talking about for different religions, and that is the spiritual experience within religion uh it can happen in prayer in contemplation or in meditation or in any other practice and also there is uh it's a bit controversial depending on who you talk to but uh there are people who do spiritual work that is not necessarily necessarily related to one specific religion and basically spiritual work includes a, a very wide range of practices uh, from the ones I've just mentioned meditation prayer contemplation uh, but also uh, including deeper relaxation work that make us even not feel our bodies and go and you know be more ethereal or um, expansion of energy beyond our bodies in a transpersonal experience. Uh, But also um, there there are higher levels of experiences of the heart where you just feel this, this almost impossible to describe emotion of gratitude, of goodness, or forgiveness that goes beyond anything that you have worked on uh, to be able to achieve that. It's just a gift, a a grace coming down to us. And also, sometimes there are experiences like feeling like you're merging with someone else, with nature, with God, or with a, 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 a meaningful spiritual teacher, uh, and that is mystical union. So there are different sorts of experiences that we can call spiritual. Also service, uh, when your heart is pure, can be part of what we are calling spiritual work.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to define spirituality or spiritual work in, a, in an expansive way, in an inclusive way. Um, and that will all be part of what we talk about. I think what we're really trying to, to have a conversation about today that will hopefully be helpful to people is almost to create a larger framework for, for inner work. We often talk about how the Enneagram is an amazing tool for guiding inner work. And sometimes we have people ask, well, what exactly do you mean by inner work? Or, or what exactly, you know, what exactly do you do? when you want to do really high quality inner work and i think it, one way of seeing inner work is it's a combination of psychological work and spiritual work and the enneagram is an amazing model that really that really maps out a path of development that includes both um, and that very much sees them as uh, part of a one long trajectory. Again, should you choose to follow follow that larger path, um, but I thought we thought it would be good to talk in in more specifics, a little bit like Rodanio's already started to do with spirituality. But what do we mean by psychological work? What do we mean by spiritual work? And how do they? Uh, how, how are they distinctive, but also part of uh, one larger journey? That you can take in a conscious way when you really commit to your own growth and and development.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, be sometimes um, more to make the teaching easier. You and I say that basically people need to do a whole bunch of psychological work first, and then later on, ideally, do more spiritual work. And while that is a good thing to bear in mind because this is the ideal sequence. I think that in practice, for most people, these things come a bit more together and one leads to the other. And so one image that I always have in my mind when when I reflect about psychological and spiritual work through the Enneagram, is the image of the DNA, you know, those two spirals going up. It's not one, it's two. And I think that the, d- the double helix double. Yeah, exactly. So that is what I see or, or visualize when we talk about doing both while we are, uh, hopefully going up in levels of awareness. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I definitely think they go hand in hand, and certainly some people start with spiritual work, and you know that makes sense in many ways. And I think we can talk about what that means when people maybe find an entry point into their path through through spirituality or religion. Uh, but then, as we often say, some of the work to be done, since we're human beings that that who identify with our personality, is much of what we need to really do is psychological. And, and again, I think it hel- it'll help for us to define what exactly that is. And by way of doing that, I want to say a couple of things. One is just what I think the heart of good psychological work is all about. And of course, this can encompass psychotherapy. But I also think when we talk about psychology, it's, a, it's, it's the larger framework of how do we understand ourselves as humans Uh, in terms of humans that have a body and a brain and a heart and emotions and mental activity and somatic awareness, like how do we bring all this together and talk about the psychological work that we each need to do and as a, as the psychological piece. And then I also, I I think I want to start by talking about, uh, just offering maybe a couple of quotes from a book that I really like. It's a, it's a small book if you like small books rather than large books. Um, and it's by P.D. Auspensky, who some of you may know, um, wrote wrote. I, we think that sort of the best book about Gurdjieff out there, called um, uh, "In Search of the Miraculous." And he was one of Gurdjieff's students, and of course, Gurdjieff is uh, the the person, the, the the sort of transformation transformational teacher who brought really the Enneagram to the West as a symbol of self-development or, or transformation. Someone who talked about a program of self-work uh, connected to the symbol of the Enneagram, but not someone who talked about the types, but we often refer to him. And, uh, and, and he's just an important figure in understanding uh, what's behind the Enneagram, how it's connected to ancient uh, philosophical wisdom traditions. Um, and Ouspensky was uh, one of his students, and and one and uh, you know a, a significant person in his own right. He had already been an author when he met Gurdjieff, but he wrote this little book that I really like called "The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution." Uh, and I want to set the stage just by saying a couple of things. It's actually a series of lectures that he gave um, in the mid 1900s, um, and. He uh, he talked a little bit about what I think is sort of this Gurdjieffian view of what psychology is. Uh, And so I just want to say a couple of things from that, because to me, I found it really interesting because we tend to think of psychology as starting in the modern era with Freud. Right. He was the one who kind of developed the field or the study of psychology, sort of defined what it was. Uh, but what I like about what Auspensky says is he makes it, he defines it much more broadly. Um, so I want to say a couple of quotes about from his, from this short book. And anything you want to say before I mention these, Auspensky's view?
1: Yeah, I just want to mention that uh, later in life, Auspensky and Gurdjieff went apart um, and uh, that. That was an interesting thing when, uh, when we observe all of Gurdjieff's work. And I think that he was really big, Ouspensky, in terms of keeping the, the psychological work. Um, and I do not think that they had too much of a problem between them because of this take on doing uh, psychological and spiritual work. But I just think it's interesting to see that um, when it comes to this kind of kind of uh, approach, it, it, there is always a, a certain tension between approaches uh, that sometimes include this discussion on psychology or spirituality, which should never be either or should be plus.
0: Right, Yes, I agree. So here's what Ospensky said in his one of his lectures. Um, he said, "I shall speak about the study of psychology, but I must warn you that the psychology about which I speak is very different from anything you may know under this name." He says, "To begin with, I must say that practically never in history has psychology stood at so low a level as at the present time." Okay, this is speaking in the 1900s, uh, just a, you know, in our last century. It has lost all touch with its origin and its meaning so that now it is even difficult to define the term psychology. That is to say what psychology studies. And this is so in f- spite of the fact that never in history have there been so many psychological theories and so many psychological writings. Um, so I love this because he's really trying to help us redefine what we think of as psychology and the study of psychology. And here's what he says about this. He says, psychology is sometimes called a new science. This is quite wrong. Psychology is perhaps the oldest science. And unfortunately, in its most essential features, a forgotten science. In order to understand how psychology can be defined, it is necessary to realize that psychology, except in modern times, has never existed under its own name. So I love this idea that psychology has existed, you know, for centuries, uh, but not necessarily under the name psychology. And and he says that this is because um, psychology was sometimes suspected of subversive tendencies, either religious or political or moral, and it had to use disguises, which I love. And he says, for thousands of years, psychology existed under the name of philosophy. In India, all forms of yoga, which are essentially psychology, are described as one of the six systems of philosophy. Sufi teachings, which again are chiefly psychological, are regarded as partly religious and partly metaphysical. In Europe, Even quite recently, in the last decades of the 19th century, many works on psychology were referred to as philosophy. He also says that that during the time when psychology was connected with philosophy and religion, it also existed in the form of art. Poetry, drama, sculpture, dancing, even architecture were means for transmitting psychological knowledge. For instance, the Gothic cathedrals were in their chief meaning Works on psychology, so I I just kind of wanted to say this because I think one of the things the enneagram points to so specifically is a kind of ancient lineage that for many centuries remained secret and were only passed on from master to student in in in, in schools where things were kept uh, secret and and I think. One of the things I love about the Enneagram is I believe its power comes from this uh, very long standing lineage of addressing the human psychology and spirituality and the ways that they can flow together uh, and help us understand uh, the whole project of human transformation, sort of what we are when we're identified uh, with our personality and what we are when we come into the world and we grow up. Uh, but what is possible for us to attain
1: yeah very good points uh likewise i um i really like this book i love alspensky uh, but I, and i agree with all you said b i think also psychology has much more ancient roots however i just want to point out that bo um uh, Gurdjieff and Auspensky. Um, lived at the same time as Freud and Jung, uh, and they were contemporary. So in a way, there was a little bit of a rivalry. I wouldn't call it rivalry, but some dispute on what all of them very prominent figures were uh, talking about life and existence and and self-development. And uh, I sometimes read this book by Alspensky as a provocation to Freud and Jung.
0: Definitely. I, I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's really important history. And I, I do think that although Jung's psychology was very transpersonal and he was very connected to different forms of spirituality and different kinds of spiritual experience himself, um, I definitely agree that that Gurdjieff and Auspensi are trying to make it more complicated, uh, widen the, the scope of what we're talking about when we talk about psychological work. Uh, but I want to bring it into today and, you know, make it practical for people who may be listening um, and just talk a little bit about what I think are sort of the main goals of psychology of certainly in, in the ways I think it's practiced best, uh, sometimes it, through the medium of psychotherapy, sometimes just in helping us conceptualize what we're trying to do when we do inner work. What is this all about? What's the, what's the main goal and, and how do you get there? So at least in my training as a psychotherapist and in a lot of the reading I'm, I've done, I've One of the main goals, I believe, of psychological work is to study ourselves at a deep level, to to really observe, study, understand how we operate such that we can make what's unconscious conscious. Now, certainly this was Freud's aim, but I think it's the aim of different kinds of work Certainly what Ospensky points to in terms of um, literature, art, um, even as he points out psychological approaches embedded in, in different religions, that it's all about recognizing that what you pay attention to, what you're conscious of, what you act out in everyday life is not all of who you are, that really your psyche contains so much more and that often we get into trouble, we get stuck, uh, and we don't grow when we are driven by unconscious patterns and habits uh, without being conscious of them. And so a lot of psychological work is really studying, okay, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? And if I can ask that question with a really open mind and a lot of compassion, I can allow myself to explore the deeper roots of why I do what I do and the the ways that some of my habits and patterns reflect adaptive strategies uh, that started in childhood, um, ways that I uh, became reactive and uh, engage in automatic behavior based on um, unconscious defenses that start early on uh, that help us survive in the world and help us not be so injured or hurt by our experience such that we shut down uh, and help us move forward in life without being uh, excessively traumatized or stressed so that we can grow and function and thrive. But when we reach adulthood, um, it's important to recognize that we're driven by so much unconscious habit that we don't see because it accum these adaptive strategies and defense mechanisms and and ways of reacting and patterns of thinking feeling and behaving they accumulate and they kind of the sum total of them create our personality and then we think that's all we are. And we're so busy often trying to survive and just get through every day that we don't realize that we're only conscious of a small fraction of what's really going on inside us. And when we really focus our attention in an intentional way to understand ourselves at a deeper level and to root out unconscious patterns and make them more conscious. Uh, It really goes a long way to creating more flexibility, more willingness to see why we do what we do uh, and to have more self-acceptance and ultimately more freedom as we stop being driven by unconscious habits uh, and start to be able to be capable of more conscious choice, to be able to develop a will to do things differently.
1: Very, very good explanation, B. I I, I think it's enough, and I just want to point out to uh, our listeners that we recorded a past episode on Enneagram 2.0 podcast. It was episode number 27 called Psychotherapy Through an Enneagram Lens. And in that episode, we added uh, more content to what you've just said.
0: Yes. Anything you would add to sort of the way we we think that Enneagram helps us understand our psychology such that we can do
1: yeah. good inner work? So what I'll add um, is something more connected to plain Enneagram theory. We also have a recorded different podcasts talking about the passion of type, the uh, You know, we sometimes talk about the fixation of type and all of that connects very closely to psychological themes. So passion of type is an emotional vice that kidnaps all the emotional space. We feel almost only that and cease to feel other things. And in psychology, as you explained us, we we need to open up our heart to all sorts of feelings. Um, there is an interesting thing, which is when we feel one or two or three emotions out of the four basic ones, we shut the whole heart, not only part of it, because the heart is only one organ. So through psychological work, we open our our heart, our human heart, um, when we get in touch with all emotions, uh, when we deal with emotions that we usually try to avoid um, and find new ways of, you know, going there and going through it. However, the, when it comes to um, it, the Enneagram theory, the passion is kidnapping all that content, Right even the content of the main emotions that we we feel at times so when we do work on the passion what we do is try to lower down the energy of the passion with some techniques and then open up space for other emotional experiences and that is also pretty much achievable in, psych- in psychology. Uh, you don't necessarily need in the beginning a, a spiritual approach to do that. But later on, a spiritual approach will be extremely useful because there are later stages on working on the passion that actually are more spiritual than psychological.
0: The, of course, the passion and the vice-to-virtue conversion embedded within the Enneagram model, um, we can speak to, uh, to all of these things in purely psychological terms, purely modern psychological terms. And you know, when we talk about these things, what we're really talking about is unconscious emotional patterns, unconscious emotional motivations. Um, ways that we seek to stay safe or maintain our self-image or uh, try to, you know, have pop people see us in the way we want to be seen. Um, but it's also a way sometimes that we lie to ourselves and a way that we stay stuck and a way that we get caught up in the ego as opposed to developing a larger capacity to move beyond the ego or the personality. Now, another thing I want to say about psychological work is, you know, I I've often said how, you know, my history is that I learned the Enneagram about six years before I went back to school uh, to study psychology in graduate school and become a psychotherapist. And what was always amazing to me as I went through and learned psychology in school was how these different psychological theories of how we can approach growth as humans, they all fit into the Enneagram model. So in other words, I came to see the Enneagram as this kind of grand theory or larger framework that contained different approaches to psychological work within it. Uh, For instance, um, a lot of people may be familiar with, and I won't go too much into this because, as you say, we have another we have another podcast about psychotherapy. Uh, but the fact that um, a lot of one one popular approach, especially in the West in the US, is cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, even though I wasn't a cognitive behavioral therapist, sometimes I would use techniques from that approach because. It fits so well with the Enneagram to really highlight, okay, what are your core beliefs? What are some thinking patterns that you're caught up in? What are your emotional patterns? What are some emotional emotions that you tend to feel too much of or not enough of? What emotions do you avoid feeling at all? And what emotions do you need to get more in touch with? That's a basic thing that we need to work on when we're doing psycho-spiritual work. And if you're someone who can't feel anger, Or if you're someone who feels too much anger, if you're someone who isn't in touch with their sadness uh, or is driven too much by fear. These are emotional things that we need to work with psychologically so that we can feel all our emotions, make use of the information they bring about what's going on inside us, um, and then experience them, process them, channel them in constructive ways, and then let them go. Um, And so that's, these are are important, important elements. Gestalt therapy is really a a body-based psychotherapy. Um, So all of these things kind of fit together. And when you're doing inner work, a big question you might ask yourself is, what's the right approach for me at this point in my path? Um, Should I maybe do some somatic work that's more focused on releasing what I might be holding in my body? Do I need to do some more emotional work? Uh, Do I need to look at early childhood wounding? Um, Do I need to really work through that difficult relationship I had with my mother or my father or my siblings? Um, All of these are kind of contained within the Enneagram. The Enneagram sort of lets us know that we have to understand and get more and more and more conscious of um, the patterns operating in all three centers as a prelude or part of the work of of being able to come more from our three centers in, in in the ways that are most supportive of our our health and our growth.
1: Yeah, I love that. But B, I I, I wanted to give examples in of my own uh, inner work process. Do you think this is okay?
0: Yes, great. I think examples always help bring these points home, and I don't want us to get too theoretical. I want us to be more practical.
1: Right. So when I when I started doing inner work, although I, I was already a bit more open to spirituality than I used to be before, because in my teenage years I wasn't, um, I... Um, um, I was dedicating myself more to therapy and psychological processes, right? So I I did good work by then. I was still much younger than now. And while I was doing that more psychological work, I, I noticed one thing. That when I did a very good piece of work over different sessions or different workshops... Uh, or talks with um, people who helped me uh, and got better in that particular theme I was working on, I would experience a different state of being in me that now I can name uh, in spiritual terms. Uh, However, because I was not aware and because those people advising me were much more on the psychological side of things, there wasn't time to integrate that. There wasn't a a focus on seeing what I was experiencing as a beautiful spiritual uh, experience of presence, relaxation, and expansion. Uh, And, uh, you know, quieting my mind, opening dimensions of the heart uh, that wasn't integrated because basically from a psychological perspective, both from other people and from myself, uh, as soon as we finished an important process, the question was, what's next? What is the next thing that you want to work on yourself? So coming back a bit either to the cognitive or the emotional, but never given time. To experience spirituality, and then later in my life, when I already did a lot of spiritual work, um, meditations and also dynamic meditations, in many of those practices, I would have an experience of a blockage in myself that I I wouldn't be able to go on uh, in that spiritual exercise with the very same quality of presence. There was a, block, a blockage of some kind. And invariably, the advice was, oh, okay, just relax a little bit and then do it again. Just uh, push that content from your head, breathe in and down, and then go do it again. Keep meditating. However, I now see B that many of those blockages were pointing out to psychological shadows. Like I was fighting against that because of my presumptuous stance of, of who I was, how important I was, or um, you know my attachment to power, and other psychological uh, agenda that perhaps if the person guiding me was a bit more holistic seeing both, I, I could perhaps stop that meditative experience and do some work on the blockage uh, to come back to a much better meditation experience next. I wanted to share this because I think this points out to the deficiency on inner work when we're not truly integrating both.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. I think certainly they can help each other so much. And um, I do want to point out that, you know, I, I always try to be really inclusive in the way I think about inner work. You know, of course, you and I have a bias and our belief and our experience in our own work has been bringing together psychology and spirituality uh, in, in different ways um, all the way through. Uh, however, some people may may not be into spirituality. You know, some people may not believe in God. Um, some people may have fears about what it means to do psychological work or psychotherapy. And, and I think uh, it's really important that we recognize that. And, you know, it's all OK. You know, wherever you start from is OK. And I think the main thing is if you have a motivation to grow. And there are different ways of doing that. And, you know, certainly we can talk about inner work in terms of practical growth steps. We can talk about it in terms of psychological work. We can talk about it in terms of spiritual work. We can talk about it both at the same time. Now, you and I, I think, believe that the, especially if, if we're working with the Enneagram as part of our, our growth process, it, you know, it's at its most powerful when we're using both psychological insights and spiritual insights
1: yeah well said um but but, I think that our aim here is to say that whenever a different experience happens with you, that y- your inner experience changes, stop contemplate, and talk to someone who can advise you well to see if it's a new psychological or spiritual experience. Uh, and and deal with it as such. So it's not about believing or not believing. It's about, um, you know, l- looking at the experiences that are happening. The only thing real is your experience. And actually, even Gurjeev, who was deeply uh, spiritual, had... Um, an advice to all his students he would say never believe what I say just go experience go practice if it's your experience then trust it
0: hi if you're enjoying the depth of knowledge offered in this podcast you might want to stay in touch with us B and Udanyu offer professional Enneagram training, personal development courses, self-guided online courses, and they even have a membership platform with over 100 hours of content. Head to cpenneagram.com slash podcast to learn more. Yeah, and if I can speak about my own experience a little bit, you know, uh, I grew up uh, in the Catholic church. And, you know, I was raised Catholic and my parents had gone to Catholic school their whole lives. And so I went to church every Sunday. Um, But in the the Catholic experience of my childhood, by the time I reached my teenage years, you know, I'd been going to church every Sunday. I'd been baptized and and done confirmation. Um, I really found the whole experience to be very empty. Uh, now I did, I did have a sense of faith and I'm always be grateful to the religion of my upbringing for giving me a sense of faith in something larger than myself. Um, but it felt more like a set of rules or an abstract doctrine and not something that I could apply to my own life, not something that I felt helped me understand my own experience better. And so by the time I was 18 or 19, I, I, I. I decided it wasn't for me anymore, and I, I kind of left the church behind. Didn't go to church anymore. Of course, my father wasn't happy about that, but that's the way it was. Um, but when I learned the Enneagram, uh, five, four or five years later, um, part of the my, my Enneagram experience was being having a huge awakening that actually there was something, you know to spirituality, that there were paths and sources and this whole um, world of teachings that did make sense to me, that did point to something larger in a way that that opened up a practical path of spiritual development for me. So, I I read In Search of the Miraculous, um, and Gurdjieff talks about sort of the real meaning behind some of the Christian scriptures and things like that, and also other traditions as well. And so um, the Enneagram helped me get back in touch with my spirituality, and it introduced me to the perennial philosophy Um, And I do think the Enneagram is connected to the perennial philosophy or this idea that the root of all religions are kind of saying the same thing, the same spiritual message or offering uh, a path to a similar destination, even though there are different paths of getting there. Um, and, And this is encapsulated, I think, in Aldous Huxley's book about the perennial philosophy. And it's just the idea that you know the perennial philosophy is the idea that we are that you are that what is that that is something divine um much more than your personality uh and that the path to manifesting your higher nature is what spiritual traditions are all about and i think that's also what psychology is all about Um, It's making the unconscious conscious. It's releasing the narrow identification of who you are with your ego or your outlook or what you like and don't like or what you're comfortable with or your defensive patterns. It's releasing you from thinking, well, I am what I do or I am my emotions or I am that that thing I said yesterday that now I'm afraid made me look bad Um, that recognizing that, that our personality is just a small part of who we are that developed to, to get along in the world, to help us survive childhood and become functional adults. But that by the time we become adulthood, we're limited in ways that we don't see. And I think what's, what's really important about psychology is to recognize that a lot of, a lot of times the ways we wake up, to the psychological and spiritual work that we need to do to be happier, more fulfilled, more satisfied, more free, um, is through some of our, what we might call psychological symptoms. For instance, let's say you feel anxiety. You know, if you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I don't want to live with this anxiety anymore. I want to do something about it to hopefully try to get free of it. I may be afraid that I can never get free of it, but I want to at least try. Or what's going on that I'm depressed? What's going on that I feel despair? What's going on that life feels hopeless? You know, it's it's tuning into what's going, exactly like you said, starting where you are. What's going on with you right now that feels challenging or or difficult or what's your suffering right now? I, I had a consultant when I was a psychotherapist. She used to say, where's the pain? <laughs> what's the pain point? You know, that's your way in. Uh, and I remember when I was, you know, I, I, as a client, so I, the Enneagram connected me back to, to my spirituality, but I still had never been to therapy. And it was only when I, um, when I was, when I was really getting deep into the Enneagram and I joined a woman's group, just with some friends who were also interested in the Enneagram. And the therapist in charge of that women's group said to me after the group was over, Hey, why don't you come see me for some therapy? Like it never would have occurred to me to go to therapy. It just didn't, you know, I, my life was okay. You know, I was doing all right. Uh, But I wasn't tapped into the fact that I was, Oh, I had this underlying anxiety. I I was prone to depression. Uh, when I was writing my dissertation, I got really stuck and couldn't move forward and didn't know what to do. Uh, and these things were my way in when I started psychotherapy. And I did about 16 years all total. Um, but in the beginning, it was just really in concert with the Enneagram, recognizing like, wow, I'm always afraid someone's going to get mad at me. Wow. I really don't feel very good about myself as I walk through the world. Wow. I'm actually kind of inauthentic when I'm acting happy because I want people to like me and I'm not able to reveal or talk about the deeper sadness that I feel that when I really, really tune into myself, I recognize has, has been there for a long time and is about not being seen or understood or fully loved. And so it was through psychology that I really began to get a lot more clear on what was happening inside me that was causing suffering and be able to enter into a process where I could do something about it. And I remember years later realizing all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, I'm not as anxious as I used to be what happened and i think sometimes it's that's how it happens it's like we 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 focus on what's not working at any moment in time and we get help to do the psychological work around it and spirituality i think helps us have a larger container sometimes it helps meditation helps us develop the inner witness which i think is the first step in applying spirituality to our process if i can meditate and create more space around my thoughts and my emotions and begin to observe them with more objectivity uh, and not be so identified with them but stand you know in consciousness stand a little apart from them and, and view them from a distance in that distance as victor frankel says in that famous quote Um, You know, in between uh, stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space lies our freedom. When we can begin to lengthen that space and observe ourselves and develop that inner observer, which I think takes both psychological and spiritual work, because I can know what is my reactivity and why is it happening? Well, I'm self-critical, maybe because my father was really critical and I wanted to please him and get his approval. And so I had to constantly monitor myself when I understand that through a psychological process. And then I meditate so I can see, oh, there I am again. I'm criticizing myself over and over again, which is leading to anxiety and depression. Um, I have one, I I heard a great um, thing a therapist once said to me, or I think I read somewhere once that one of the, uh, uh, you know, believing an untruth about yourself is a recipe for depression. Now, of course, there are different recipes for depression, but that's one of them. And when I read that, I went, wow, wow you know, because I had some really big negative beliefs about myself. And as I unearthed those negative beliefs and with help and support was able to challenge those beliefs and really say like, is that really true? Maybe it's not true. And maybe I bought into it so much that I'm depressed because I believe something that's negative about me. I believe in the reality of that. My, my therapist once said, it's like you believe in that like a religious conviction, such that I'm keeping myself in a kind of prison. And I think when we do psychological and spiritual work together, and I think it's different for each type. And that's why I think the the Enneagram is so brilliant. It helps us see their individualized, customized paths for each of us, depending on our type and subtype. When you realize, when you combine, as we do in our retreat A, the map that is the Enneagram of, of... self-development growth steps, both psychological and spiritual, when you combine that with the examination of where are you now? How are you feeling now? What is causing you pain now? What what do you need to overcome now? What do you want to what do you aspire to achieve that you feel like you can never allow yourself to receive? All of these things are wonderful questions to ans- to ask yourself when you're doing your inner work.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you said so many important things. And above all, thank you for your uh, personal sharing. Um. Yeah, you mentioned our retreat A. Uh, Many people have spiritual expansions, spiritual experiences in there. And then on retreat B, it's not that people don't have them, they do, but uh, mostly we bring them back to all the psychological agenda that they need to to work on uh, in a way that that is effective and will help people grow faster. So we, I think, that speaks to the fact that you and I see uh, the importance of you know one step on one side and then another step on the other side. Um, but um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, depression, for instance. Um, I. I You know, I think that several of our listeners will resonate to what I'm going to say, while others might simply not believe that. And it's totally fine. But many believe or even have witnessed episodes of healing that is sort of miraculous. uh, Or they have heard about them uh, from sources they trust. And uh, talking here about healing of a physical illness. Um, So that is not completely uncommon. Now, what about mental illness? Well, I've seen uh, someone being healed of a depression um, like this in a spiritual way through a particular spiritual intervention. And I must say that I don't think this person would have uh, got this uh, gift unless this person had uh, been trying really hard for 20 years to, be, uh, to do the work on the depression uh, with a lot of effort. Uh, sometimes they say that miracles come to people who have already done a lot of work, right but uh my point is that even something that we we see fundamentally as something connected to psychology and psychiatry and therefore belonging to the realm of science can have extremely important um inputs from the realm of spirituality and vice versa so there are ways that sometimes in a spiritual manner we 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 experience something that feels miraculous because many things feel uh, miraculous when it comes to spirituality in my case i did Really, a lot of years of therapy on um, my, the mother complex and some issues that I felt with my, my mom. And I got really better. And I, I did very diligent work on that. But I wasn't still, you know, ideal. And I hadn't had uh, the breakthrough. And then with a particular spiritual teacher... I had it in a matter of seconds, and I can't describe the experience, but uh, the result was a level of forgiveness and love that I did not believe was possible in my case. Um, And I wouldn't have got that unless I had done all the work before. That, That work made me perhaps ready to... Get that gift. I like to believe that. But also, if I had done that work and not had that, uh, I would be missing out something super important. And uh, one more thing. Um, when you mentioned that psychology uh, basically tries to make the unconscious conscious, I think that's super important, and there is that classical image that Freud, shared of the iceberg, right? So what we see of the iceberg uh, above the sea level is just 10% of the actual size of the iceberg uh, if you take all that is underneath uh, uh, the, the surface. Uh, and he said that what we see of the iceberg is, is, our, uh, is the conscious mind while the unconscious is much bigger. Uh, that's the analogy there, but um, but in a way, a very similar thing applies in spirituality, and when we talk about higher states that we describe on the enneagram theory. So we are leaving personality and and making and being conscious of spirituality, but we are still very unconscious of who we really are in essence, in higher states. And what is the quest? It's really the same. It's to make the unconscious conscious. It's to help uh, essence manifest through us, through our heart and our mind in, in the higher centers connected to them. So it's not different. Psychological, uh, Psychological and spiritual work are both going for consciousness. So I think this word, which is very important in spiritual feuds, actually speaks to both, not only um, spirituality. It's consciousness work. And one without the other and consciousness work, awareness work, is not the best thing. While we can do just one, we will really miss out with, with, if we don't engage with the other.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I agree. I think consciousness is where it all comes together. And the quest for more consciousness, higher consciousness, um, bringing more things into awareness. And of course, psychologically, one of the reasons why we stay unconscious is to avoid pain. And so I think part of it is to get more aware of what causes us pain, develop more of a tolerance to go into our pain so that we can ultimately release it. So the psychological part is in some ways working with the part, the definition of uh, us humans as, as, as beings of limited consciousness until we do the work to advance our consciousness. And of course, the spiritual messages of so many teachings is that we are fully capable. It's our birthright. Uh, We and it should be good news to people if they do if they do have an openness to spirituality that um, that really there's the possibilities are endless if you have the will and the motivation to become more conscious to face what you may be afraid to be aware of and bring it into consciousness so that you don't have to keep putting energy into staying defended. And it's also harkens back to that, the ancient Greek, uh, saying, you know, that the key to life was to know thyself. Uh, and I think in that a lot of the ancient Greek philosophy, you see both spiritual and psychological messages embedded in them. Um, but I really think that it, it can be all one path. I love how when, when Ken Wilber first, uh, was coming out with some of his early books, I remember how the big news was that he had really connected Freud and the Buddha, uh, that he had really showed how human development can be seen on this continuum uh, that goes from understanding ourselves at a very human level, at the level of uh, human survival, uh, which includes instincts, of course, Um, but then... Once we do that work and we become more conscious and we work through what's painful and we develop an inner witness, uh, we, can, we open ourselves up to the benefits of spiritual work. And as you said, it can, it can mean uh, becoming aware of things in more of a flash, uh, which can happen after years of more diligent uh, step-by-step work. Uh, but what else would you say uh, about this important topic?
1: Well, I th- I think we covered uh, pretty much what I intended to say. I just want to add one author in the book because we mentioned a few, and uh, I just want to talk to to suggest James Hillman's book called "Revision in Psychology." It's from the early '90s, if I'm not wrong, and he. Uh, basically in that book, a personal favorite, he, he talks about something that could be described as the psychology of the soul. And I think that captures a little bit of the, what we're talking about here.
0: I also want to mention one of my psychological authors who I've probably mentioned before, but that is Karen Hornay. And I think if you're a lay person who hasn't necessarily studied psychology in school, um, her books are really readable and accessible, and I've been thinking about her in this discussion because she has such clear and, I think, compassionate and, and real ways, authentic ways of talking about the human dilemma and how um, the human child uh, has many needs. And it's inevitable that those needs don't, don't all get met by the people in in her environment because There are many needs and people are human and they have their own limitations. So it's just normal for for us to have a kind of basic anxiety that grows out of the experience of not getting our needs met. And so uh, when we have that basic anxiety, we try to resolve it in different ways. And one of those ways of resolving it um, is to go either toward people, away from people or against people. And I think those three moves correspond to the, uh, the heart types, the head types and the body types. Um, so so that's, uh, that's, that's something beautiful that she talks about that if you're really interested in, in psychology um, in a way that's accessible, uh, I recommend her books are, are really, really great and really readable. Um, and I thank you for being interested in this conversation because we, we want to do more, more discussions like this, where we really talk about what are the elements of inner work? Uh, where, what do you need to think about? What can you do when you have, bring a lot of sincerity to your own inner growth path when you, when you love the Enneagram and want to use it as a, a modality and, and hopefully we've shed a little bit of light on how psychology and spirituality uh, come into that. So on that note, it's time for our top five. What is our top five today? Be Our top five today is. The types most likely to be atheists.
1: <laughs> this is funny. Yeah. I liked when you suggested that we talked about this, but, uh, uh, I think it's important to say that we come from a perspective that uh, atheism is is uh, as valid as a position as any other. We are really, really inclusive here.
0: Yeah, obviously we're not atheists, but I, you know, it's it's really a choice like any other, and and uh, we tr- we aim to be very inclusive here, and and I think inner work can be done by anyone and. And, and so sometimes when we're talking about spirituality, I get concerned that we're not including people who maybe don't believe uh, in, in a higher power as, as conventionally conceived. Um, so we thought it would be fun to talk about the, the, the five top types who are most likely to be atheists, because I really have observed uh, that there is some type
1: themes yeah I agree. And uh, just want to say that I've seen so many people who used to be atheists that uh, later in life really go the other way because of experiences they have.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense exactly. And certainly there are historical figures who were atheists but then um, didn't uh, didn't subscribe to that. Uh, throughout their lives, toward the end of their life, uh, switched. People have gone back and forth. Um, I'm always fascinated by atheists, actually. And I, I remember there was a guy who studied um, uh, religion and, and people who didn't believe in God. And he, he used to ask people uh, who, who were atheists, he used to say, what's the God like that you don't believe in? which I thought was such an interesting question. Um, But anyway, let's get to our top five. What's your... your... Before
1: that, uh, I just want to say that atheism is something that changes a lot depending on the national culture we are talking about. So if you go to Europe, in general, Western Europe, I mean, uh, and, and especially not in Southern Europe, uh, you'll see that atheism is much stronger than in other places in the world, so just as one example. But, um, but I'm saying this because any type in Europe might have a tendency to be you know, more atheist than any other type in some other countries. So I think that uh, there are components that are not type-related that play a big role here.
0: Okay, so what is your number five most likely to be an atheist?
1: I'm particularly curious to see if our list will match this time or not, but let's see. My number five is type four. I've seen several, but not too many, type fours uh, that uh, self-proclaim as being atheists, and I'd say... In this case, especially when the surroundings um, when in the surroundings we don't find many atheists. atheists. it's like being different uh, to an extent, not only that but uh, also I think that sometimes force uh, get very deep in philosophical thoughts and sometimes, in philosophical thoughts that um, contemplate more atheism as a whole. But on the other hand, it's just my five because force also sometimes can, can just feel the intensity in, in spirituality and have a very open heart and also prone to changing uh, when there is a new experience. So my number five is one,
0: and I was a little surprised that one made my list because I've noticed that a lot of ones uh, become actually very committed to uh, a religious path. You see a lot of ones as ministers or priests or chaplains, um, and often they it's almost like they're th- the appeal of a higher perfection. Uh, is is a big draw for ones, but I also think ones can be very logical, uh, and sometimes they're for people who rely a lot on logic and rationality, as ones can, they can go in that direction and kind of see uh, sort of the unseen, the invisible world as hard to uh, hard to you know, believe in because there's a, there's a lack of an obvious logic to it or, or uh, something like that. And then ones can get a little bit focused on what the right way is or what the right thing is to believe or not believe. So, so I had ones as uh, in my number five position and I don't have fours on my list. So it was interesting to me that you had four there.
1: And I don't have ones.
0: Okay. So what, what's your number four?
1: My number four is type six. Um, I, I see many sixes who are committed to either religious or spiritual or both uh, work. Um, and many sixes, you know, have, uh, of course, that uh, the trait of uh, faith, which comes from a higher aspect of sixes. But I also see many sixes that, because of skepticism, because of doubting, become atheists. Um, I I thought about putting sixes actually on place number three or two, but I ended up having them on my fourth. What about you? What is your fourth?
0: My fourth is seven. And this is because I think sevens often want to be really free to think whatever they want to think and they can sometimes have a kind of subtle or covert rebelliousness around like conventional ways of thinking they can feel confined or limited by needing to believe what everyone else wants to believe and they can be a bit anti-hierarchical uh they can kind of go against archetypally go against the father but in subtle ways and so i think there's a way that sevens are sometimes, um, atheists because they kind of want to believe whatever they want to believe, which sometimes means not believing in something specific,
1: specifically religious. Interesting. My third is type seven. So Ah. I agree with you. And, uh, I just see that that is played out with irony many times. Um, and with a lot of rationalization, uh, and that, um, it's like the, the mental imperative, um, perhaps even, even more so than for sixes. So I don't have much to add to your beautiful explanation. What is your number, number three?
0: My number three is five. And. Five may, maybe obvious reasons to you as a five. Um, but a similar thing, very a mental type, uh, a type that tends to, um, you know, enjoy really developing their own sense of what they believe in and uh, what's possible from a mental perspective. Um, and can be very intellectual and maybe even intellectualize things like belief and religious feeling. And so, yeah, I, I think that sometimes fives, they sort of identify with that intellectual level, which sometimes doesn't make room for belief in something that can seem more irrational or, um, beyond the rational.
1: Mm. Okay. Interesting. So I guess you want to know my number two. Yes. My number two is type eight. I think eights have a uh, some tendency to be very concrete. I need to see to believe, and and then they they also just n- not trust uh, things that are more abstract, right? Uh, so I think there is a, a somewhat high percentage of eights. That can become atheists. Uh, but uh, I'm not saying that it's most or if that it's too many. I just think, I just observe that there is a, a, a somewhat big tendency. What so my n- my number
0: two is also eight for exactly all the reasons you just said, and I thought you said it very well. It's like it's a little bit like also. You know, there can be in personality a sense of nobody's bigger than me, Um, you know, of sort of identifying with the ultimate power, the one who sets the rules, doesn't follow them or breaks the rules. Uh, And exactly like you said, almost an inability to see beyond the concrete or to see a higher truth that's uh, beyond their truth or a difficulty seeing and believing in things that you can't touch, feel, and experience on a physical level.
1: Interesting. Do you want to know my first or do you want to say yours first? Uh, you can say yours first. Type five. I thought so. Yeah. Fives, I, I think I, I, I heard what you said, and I think that is more common, than at least in my sample. Um, I think that many fives... Um, you know, have that tendency to trust uh only what science has proven and data, and also what is visible, where there is evidence um but uh then there are there are the other kinds of fives, like the ones that become really mystical um, and I think I've been both, you know, uh, so I see that many fives are uh, very uh, disconnected from abstractions that cannot be grasped, uh, understood, like when there is too much mystery. It's a bit uh, anxiety-provoking for fives when there is something that uh, we won't really fully understand. But um, I'm not saying that most fives will... Will tend to be atheists? No, I don't think so. But uh, I think quite a few.
0: Yes, I agree with you. Obviously, since it was my number three, and I thought you built on what I said really nicely. Um, so, yeah, I I agree with all you said. And I I think it maybe it's important for us to say that any of these types can be deeply spiritual. It can go totally the other way. And I think definitely for fives, and that's definitely true of you. Um, it can go either way, but just, these are the types that we see do, do become atheists probably at at, at an above average rate. Um, so my number one is, and I, I have, I have to say, I slipped in a subtype here at the end. Um, my number one is sexual six, because I've seen a lot of atheists that were sexual six or the counterphobic six, the one-to-one six. And this is because they're big contrarians. And let's face it, a lot of the world believes in some sort of spirituality or God. And it's a little bit like going against that. Um, and it's, I think, also a kind of rebellion against the higher power, you know, as if to say you're not going to have power over me. And I think uh, sexual sex is uh, part of the way their fear manifests is a kind of going against in going against the power, uh, out of fear, but often in a big way. Uh, and so my number one is, uh, sexual six.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I think that if I took only sexual sixes, sixes would be definitely higher in my rank.
0: So that's, uh, uh, I think a very in- interesting top five. Thank you so much for for your partnership you. in this podcast. And we want to thank you for listening. And we ask you to join us again for our Enneagram 2.0 podcast, where we talk about all things Enneagram.